Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hi, it's Nathan Eckersley here. Before we get into the new episode of my podcast, I do need to warn you. On this episode, you might hear me asking you to send me a message with your opinion. I love hearing your opinions, but the messages you hear me reading out on air are from the live broadcast of the podcast, which takes place on Wizard Radio Station every Sunday from 3pm UK time. If you want to get involved, make sure you listen live then. Please don't try to send in any messages for this episode, as your message won't be read, but you might still be charged. Anyway, that's the legal bit done, now on to the show. I'm Nathan Eckersley and on the show this week, we are looking at the UK's foreign policy and asking if we still have influence around the world. Plus, I'll be looking at the King and Queen's state visit to Germany and asking if the monarchy is still as relevant overseas as it once was. It's a packed show and I want to hear from you, so let's go. It's fair to to say that the UK has seen a number of challenges post-Brexit, from the COVID-19 pandemic to trading difficulties with Northern Ireland. Many believed that leaving the European Union would kill any standing that the UK has around the world, and that we would permanently be relegated to the old cliché of the sick man of Europe. Whilst there are a few issues remaining, the United Kingdom is seeing something of a renaissance on the world stage as other European powers are weakening. One only needs to look at the situation across the Channel as Emmanuel Macron, once the darling of Europe's elite, channels his inner Emperor Nero by fiddling as France burns, following his highly controversial pension reforms. Now, leaving the EU has made the UK much more competitive in the global economy, by enabling us to pursue brand new free trade agreements. Since we left the bloc in 2020, The UK has signed 71 trade agreements, of which there are two full agreements with Australia and New Zealand, with many more on the way. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had a big win this week as it was confirmed that the UK will join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the CPTPP, which is the largest trading bloc in the Asia-Pacific region, and will open the UK up to an £11 trillion market. When speaking about the New Deal, this is what Kemi Badenoch, Secretary of State for Business and Trade, told Sky News. It's a a very big deal uh, and it's not about what's going to happen tomorrow. It's really uh, a strategic play for the future. We in the government uh, have had uh, an Indo-Pacific tilt. You would have heard all about the uh, integrated review, what we're going to be doing with our economy on security issues and so on. And basically the 
the crux of the matter is that global growth is going to be coming from this region. In just about seven years, about 40% of the global middle class will be in the Indo-Pacific. And what we want to do is to be able to create new pathways so we can trade more freely, because that's where the, that's where the business is going to be coming from. This is a tremendously exciting opportunity for the UK to enter one of the most competitive markets in the world. And it builds on the reputation of the United Kingdom in that part of the world. As Kemi Badenoch said, the tilt towards the Indo-Pacific comes from the government's integrated review of security, defence, development and foreign policy, which was a landmark document published by then Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab in March 2021, which was the biggest redesign of British foreign policy for decades. It established a number of core objectives for the UK's missions overseas, such as stating that China was not a threat, but the government needed to be resilient against them, and putting greater investment into cybersecurity and artificial intelligence. But at the beginning of March, the, the Integrated Review Refresh was published to update the missions of its 2021 predecessor and address the new realities of our world, such as the war in Ukraine, the AUKUS Defence Alliance, new free trade agreements and the changing nature of China's dominance in the international order. On the publication of the document, this is what Foreign Secretary James Cleverley told MPs. We have maintained our position as a global leader on international development by pursuing patient, long-term partnerships tailored to the needs of our partner countries. And we succeed because those partnerships draw on the full range of UK strengths and expertise in addition to our official development assistance. And as this House will of course be aware, the severe global turbulence forecast in the 21 Integrated Review has indeed come to pass. But the events have moved at an even quicker pace than I think anyone could have imagined just two years ago. Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine and attempts to annex part of its sovereign territory challenge the entire international order. Across the world, state threats have grown and systematic competition has intensified. There is a growing prospect of further deterioration in the coming years. The world has indeed changed rapidly since the original integrated review and the new document reflects this. But the language on China is a fascinating development in UK foreign policy and shows how much has changed, not just since the 2021 Integrated Review, but in the last decade. In 2013, Prime Minister David Cameron led a trade mission to some of China's biggest cities to begin a new relationship with the Asian powerhouse. 2015 was the beginning of what Cameron and his Chancellor George Osborne heralded as a new golden era in Sino-British relations. In fact, 2015 not only saw the controversial state visit of President Xi Jinping to London and Manchester, but also saw George Osborne become the first British government minister to visit Xinjiang, a region of China which we know today as the place where Uyghur Muslims are suffering persecution and alleged genocide at the hands of the Chinese government. And if that isn't unsettling enough, the systematic imprisonment of Uyghurs began in 2014, with the first significant drop in birth rates in Xinjiang being recorded in 2015, so there is no doubt that Osborne would have known that something wasn't right, but he visited regardless. Fast forward to today, 
and the UK has been praised for its generous asylum scheme for Hong Kongers with British national overseas status, following the Chinese Communist Party's clampdown on democracy. And the British Parliament is one of the few legislatures around the world to recognise the persecution of Uyghurs as genocide. Liz Truss, in her brief tenure, was planning to fully call out China's aggression in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and perhaps more importantly, Taiwan. Now, Rishi Sunak has amended his tough stance on China from last summer's leadership contest, describing it as an epoch-defining challenge. Indeed, on the war in Ukraine, the UK's response has been world-leading and continues to be. Whilst the United States has been the biggest financial contributor, the United Kingdom has galvanised the world into action and pushed more reluctant nations like Germany and Hungary to step up to the plate. Brexit is already paying dividends by not keeping us tied to the EU's collectivist policies and is seen as become the second largest national contributor of military, financial and humanitarian aid. The Commonwealth is another area of foreign policy in which the UK excels. UK trade with the Commonwealth is a significant part of the economy, as exports within the organisation are valued at £62.6 billion and all trade making up 9% of the UK's total international trade. Its critics will refer to the Commonwealth as nothing more than a relic of the British Empire, compounded by the fact that His Majesty the King is its head. The reality is that the Commonwealth is a unique institution, which brings together an unlikely group of countries working together to achieve shared goals and interests of prosperity, democracy and peace. Besides, the last four countries to join the Commonwealth were never under British rule, and 54 of its member states are independent, which undermines the legacy of empire argument. There's a lot of doom and gloom around at the moment. However, we should take every win where we can find it. The United Kingdom has a lot to offer on the world stage, and despite what our detractors might say, we are an international leader. Just look at the reception their majesties the King and Queen received on their state visit to Germany this week, which we will look at in more detail later in the show, which is evidence that the monarchy is still a major piece of soft power for the UK. Global Britain is so much more than a slogan. It's a mission statement which we are seeing in action today. Now, later in the show, as I just mentioned, we will be looking at the King and Queen's state visit to Germany and whether or not the monarchy is still as relevant overseas as it once was. So I would love to hear from you on that and our main topic of this week, which is, of course, Britain's place in the world. So please get in touch and let me know your thoughts. You can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at WizRadio. You can vote in our poll. The question of the day is, is the UK still a major influence around the world? To vote, visit wizardradio.com forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply at 07807 183538. Email us station at wizardradio.com and all of our contact details can be found on our website at www.wizardradio.com. We'll be back after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back 
let's hear what you have to say. And our first message today comes from Tom. Tom says, is this radio show a satire, Nathan? It must be, because there is no way you actually seriously said that leaving the EU has made the UK more competitive in the global economy. Wow, 71 trade agreements. You mean the same trade agreements that we had when we were in the EU? Well, not quite, because the EU has trade agreements with 72 countries. We only have 71. Obviously, we're lacking a trade agreement with our closest ally, the US, so that's doing well for us. All of this work our ministers are doing. It was preventable, because we're now just trying to catch up with the EU. All of the trade agreements we're doing, they already have. We're trying to get ourselves back into the position we were in, which isn't getting ahead or being more competitive now, is it? Well, thank you for that message, Tom. And I can assure you this is not a satire. I am really optimistic about the UK's place in the world. I'm optimistic about the trade agreements we have, because you are right to point out that many of those agreements are the same as we had with the European Union. Uh, and that was always going to be the case because those agreements that we have are, are known as uh, continuity agreements. They're to ensure the free movement of trade with those other countries that the EU had. But they are really just a starting point because once you have those continuity agreements, it's from there that you can build and create more of a trading relationship. You can negotiate greater tariff removals. And indeed, some of those continuity agreements there have been some uh, free trade concessions made, tariffs on some products have come down, red tape on exports and imports has been removed on some of them. So we are actually in a better position in terms of those agreements. And we only need to look at the news this week that the UK will be joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because that's a really, really exciting opportunity in a very rapidly developing part of the world. You know, the Asia-Pacific region is where, where everything is happening at the moment. And it's an economic powerhouse in its own right. And even, in fact, an excellent example of this is the deal that was negotiated with Australia. So the UK had a one of these continuity bridging agreements with Australia post-Brexit, which really was just to continue trading back and forth as is with a few extra bits thrown in. You know, a few tariffs removed here, a bit of red tape removed from there. And, you know, it was a good workable continuity solution because you know, no one would be realistically saying that divorce from the EU would be absolutely plain sailing and everything will be perfect straight away. Of course not. There are always going to be bumps in the road ending a 40-year relationship of a an ever-increasingly deep and meaningful relationship with the European Union. So there are always going to be kinks with that and you know, any, anyone who suggested there wouldn't be was simply being disingenuous. So parking that to one side. The deal with Australia that was negotiated and it was announced towards the tail end of Boris Johnson's premiership that it was agreed, it was uh, only just uh, ratified following approval by the Australian Parliament and will be approved by the UK Parliament in a matter of weeks. And that is producing some really, really game-changing prospects for UK exporters, particularly in the agricultural sector, opening up to new meat markets, for example. You know, the fact that uh, British lamb reared in England, Welsh lamb as well, now has a new market in, uh, in, in Australia. Similarly with New Zealand as well, we are receiving their high quality lamb as well, and it's giving farmers more opportunities to export to new markets. And your point on the United States, fundamentally that is a political issue because Joe Biden was never sold on Brexit. 
you know, again, Donald Trump had many flaws. And but one of the things he did say was that uh, he was very interested in pursuing a free trade agreement with the United Kingdom because free trade benefits everyone. The removal of tariffs and opening up of new markets benefits everyone. And free trade makes products cheaper. And when we're in a global cost of living crisis, anything to keep the cost of food down is a plus. So if we're able to access high quality products from overseas for cheaper, then absolutely we should be pursuing that. And whilst we don't have a full and comprehensive trade agreement with the United States, the UK does have individual trade agreements with certain states. And in fact, when Penny Mordaunt was a junior minister in the then Department for International Trade, it's been rebranded to Business and Trade now, she went on a, a mission to the United States, visiting a number of states in the Midwest to secure tr free trade agreements with those states. Again, it's a starting point and any comprehensive agreement with the US will take many years, purely because of the size of it and because their system requires every individual every one of the 50 states to approve it so you know rome wasn't built in a day okay we we were never going to get brexit done straight off the bat and that was that everything would be perfect things take time and there are a number of wins to take from the agreements we have but thank you for that message tom and whilst i appreciate your arguments that they are mostly the agreements we had originally with the eu they are a starting point to work from and we already have some wins from them so thank you our next message comes from Matt, who says the UK is still a major influence around the world because, and only because, other countries keep letting the world down. If you look at our role in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the importance of the UK's role cannot be understated. But the only reason we took that position was because the US were shy and their botched exit from Afghanistan. If there had been an appetite in the US for it, they would have taken the lead and we would have been second fiddle. I think we've been given some good opportunities, like in Ukraine, to flex our muscles and take the lead. But it isn't because of innate respect that Europe or the US or anyone really has for us. It's just because they have their internal issues and we have jumped into position before them. Well, thank you for that message, Matt. And I, I, it's an interesting point you raise, actually, with Ukraine, because the, there's no getting around the fact that Ukraine was advantageous for the United Kingdom, and in, in particular... For Boris Johnson when he was Prime Minister. He was uh, down on his luck, he, you know, had to deal with the pandemic, he's uh, had so many negative headlines from that, it's been a huge blow in the uh, local elections and it, things were looking really down for him, his party. Of course there was the whole party gate thing, it was touch and go whether or not he would even remain Prime Minister by uh, the by the the next set of local elections by last May, and Ukraine really saved his premiership. You know, he, he took the lead on that. And again, similar to as I said with Donald Trump, there were many flaws, but we do have to give praise where it's due. And with Boris Johnson, there are many flaws, but he really was world leading in uh, dealing with the Ukraine war, in rallying other leaders to action. And I think. I take your point about Afghanistan. There's no getting around it. Afghanistan was an absolute shambles. It was disgraceful behaviour from the United States to withdraw the way it did. It forced other countries to be on the back foot with it. The UK was shambolic, frankly, with its uh, response to that. Well, actually, no, the, the government was. The, the senior leadership in government, the, the Ministry of Defence uh, leadership, the Foreign Office leadership. I mean, Dominic Raab was on holiday while it happened when he was Foreign Secretary. Uh, but the, the actions of the soldiers who were there in response to that 
were uh, the best they could have done in that situation. And we should give our complete respect to the members of uh, then Her Majesty's Armed Forces who were there, who were dealing with that very rapid and fluid situation on the ground in Afghanistan. So, you, you know, you're, you're right. That, that was a huge embarrassment for the West, mostly because of Joe Biden. We didn't help ourselves in that. No country came out of that very well. And because that situation was such a shambles, that really was the green light for Vladimir Putin to go ahead. Because in 2014, when the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine really first started, when Vladimir Putin annexed Crimea, you know, the West just sat on its hands. They gave, gave Putin a, a stern telling off and saying, no, don't do that again. You know, we're, we're not happy with you. It's, it's not good that you've done that. So don't do it again. And that, that's all that Putin received for uh, the 2014 annexation, realistically. He thought he could get away with taking Ukraine. The West wouldn't be resolved enough or united enough to counter that. So far, he's been very, very wrong on that. The response to Ukraine has been excellent and the UK has led on that. And that also has restored our position. You know, post-Brexit, we have to promote ourselves. We have to take leadership opportunities where we can get them. That was a golden opportunity and full credit to Boris Johnson for taking that because the UK really is a, a, a real leader once again. So thank you for that message, Matt. Our next message comes from Oliver who says, I want to start my message by saying that I am a Remainer and I believe that Brexit was the wrong move for the UK. But when it comes to China, I see the advantages of the UK being an independent nation outside of the EU. The issue of China is a very complicated one. On one hand, positive relations with China are vital because of how big the population is and how much manufacturing and innovation is happening over there. But on the other hand, the Chinese government are committing war crimes, and let's not forget that they are siding with Putin in the Ukraine war. This is not a simple solution, and I believe that acting as an independent nation, we can probably navigate that easier than being part of a huge body like the EU, where the wishes of one or two countries could dictate the outcomes on the UK. I wonder if you feel the same, Nathan? Well, thank you for that message, Oliver. And I'm in complete agreement with you, uh, Oliver. You know, independence is only a good thing. Having sovereignty is the best thing. I mean, well, one of the advantages of Brexit is that, well, probably not an advantage for our elected politicians. But if anything goes wrong, it's our fault. Whilst we were a member of the EU, if anything was going wrong or if there was a policy uh, people didn't like. The EU is a very easy scapegoat for our politicians and they can say, oh, well, can't blame us. It's a, a European Union directive. We have to follow it. But now that we have sovereignty, we are in control of our own destiny. If we have a success, it's because of us. If we have a failure, it's because of us. And so when it comes to China, that accountability is really, really important. And we're already starting to see this level of divergence as well. I mean, there's some com common goals, some unity in regards to our parliamentarians and their recognition that the persecution taking place against Uyghur Muslims is a genocide. The European Commission has made that assessment. However, the, the UK government has not gone that far because it would mean applying sanctions. It'd be hostile to our trading relationship with China. And th this is where it the... It, it gets so complicated, so detailed, and in, in some ways quite messy. But actually, with, with China, it's only because we were independent that we were able to offer British national overseas Hong Kongers the ability to come here, claim asylum, and live their lives. And the Hong Kong scheme has been a tremendous success. And again, the 
issue of TikTok, which we, we looked at a couple of weeks ago. The EU is bound together, all 27 member states of that, they're bound to a, one collective policy. So whilst they're dithering around with that, in the UK, we've already banned it from government devices. It's been banned on the parliamentary estate. It's been banned in a number of other public sector settings. And it's my view, whilst I'm not usually in the camp that should ban things left, right and centre, because TikTok is such a danger, that's why it should be banned. And we're in a unique position where we can do that. We can restrict it to the public because of the danger it poses. It's essentially a Trojan horse for the UK population. It's, it's, it's nothing more than Chinese Communist Party spyware, in my view. So you know, thank you for that message, Oliver. And you're right, China is a complicated issue. We, we have to have a relationship with them. There's no getting around that. You know, they are the, the biggest market. They are the uh, second uh, trillion dollar tech economy. It was announced by Jeremy Hunt at the budget that we were the third trillion dollar tech economy, which is fantastic news. And again, links to that idea that we are competitive in the global economy. Companies around the world, these billion trillion dollar companies want to come to the UK. They want to invest here. And by doing that, we are able to compete with the United States. We are able to compete with China. And free markets lead to free people. And when we are able to compete with our allies, business is great. When we're able to compete with our adversaries as well, that's where the advantages come. Because we're in a position to use that independence that Brexit gives us, to be more nimble, to be more agile, to remove some more of that. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. Apologies for the technical issue we experienced there. To summarise Oliver's message, yes, I agree with you. China is a very complicated issue and the independence we have achieved from Brexit makes us more nimble and agile to counter the threat that China poses. So thank you for that message, Oliver. Let's check in with the results so far on this week's poll. The question of the day is, is the UK still a major influence around the world? Well, 44% of you say yes, the UK is, but 56% of you say no, the UK is not. Well, please do vote in the poll if you haven't already. To vote, visit wizardradio.com forward slash listen to vote live. And again, please keep your messages coming through. A reminder that all of our contact details can be found on the website at www.wizardradio.com. Let's take some more of your messages now. And our next one comes from Georgina, who says, What I feel a lot of Brexiteers couldn't get their heads around was that the EU has such a vast global influence that we will still be impacted by EU legislation, even if we are not a part of the EU. For example, the EU has banned Apple from having its own charging ports. Every phone, regardless of the manufacturer, now needs to use a universal cable moving forwards. I, I know that this is a relatively small thing, but that will impact nearly everybody in the UK that has an Apple device which is a lot of people because Apple won't just change their policies for the EU, but it will be more efficient for them to do that around the world. It's the same with the EU's rules around the internet and GDPR. 
These things naturally impact the UK too. Only we weren't a part of the decision making at this time because we are no longer a part of the EU. Well, thank you for that message, Georgina. And of course, the the actions of the EU influence uh, what happens in the UK. And there is no finer example of that than looking at the situation in Northern Ireland at the moment. Now, the, the government is hailing this Windsor framework, which is the new deal that they've achieved on Northern Ireland and changing the Northern Ireland protocol. They're hailing that as a new deal that will give the UK more independence over Northern Ireland. It'll sever the ties that the EU had on the uh, Northern Ireland population. That is not the case. If anything, it actually makes Northern Ireland an effective colony of the EU. It's still governed by all EU legislation. It's just administered by the UK. That is not a healthy position to, to be in. And as a result of that, the whole of the UK is bound by the rules and laws of the EU customs union by joining that single market, the trading bloc. But it's an interesting point you make about uh, Apple there and the fact that they now have to have the USB-C charging points on their products. And again, that's a very, very anti-competition move because whilst I get that they want to do it for environmental reasons by reducing the amount of cables people have and you know, limiting the manufacture of it and having one standard, one size fits all charging point, it's anti-innovation to say the very least. And the, because the UK hasn't introduced that, that's why we have the advantage from Brexit. Because let's say, let's say just for example, Apple comes up with this brand new system of charging its devices and it's game changing, it's ultra fast and they're going to be rolling out with every new product. The UK will have access to that, the United States, China, everywhere else will have that access except the EU because it, the legislation won't have caught up because that you know they'll say oh well the safeguards are still in place for environmental reasons the manufacturing processes it'll take too long to undo all that and by the time the legislation gets changed and approved by each of the 27 other countries within the EU we we will be ahead of the EU on charging technologies the United States will China will Canada will Australia will all the other countries where apple ships to they will be ahead of the EU because of that anti-competition move Similarly, on GDPR as well, again, there are so many burdens and regulations that come as a result of that, that mean that uh, the UK is in a position to make it more bespoke to our needs, not just the collective needs of 27 other countries. And we still have the legacy of GDPR uh, in the UK uh, as a consequence of GDPR, actually. There are a number of websites, news websites in particular, that European users just can't use. And the UK government has promised that it will repeal that piece of legislation. It will enable access to those news sites. Usually it's more like um, regional news sites in the US or Australia, something like that, because some of their data protection doesn't quite fit the mold with what the EU wanted to introduce. But there's no reason why we can't access them. So, you know, you're absolutely right. We are going to be affected by the decisions of the EU, mostly as a result of the Windsor Protocol and the issues with Northern Ireland. But fundamentally, because we decided to leave, we can have that agility within our markets. We have that agility within our economy to diverge where necessary, to distance ourselves from where we think they are going wrong. And whilst there are obviously some rules that we have to follow because of that trading relationship on the island of Ireland, that's we, we do still have to follow certain rules. An opt-in, opt-out system for businesses exporting to the EU would have been a far better solution and 
you know, it's, it's just baffling why the UK decided to hand effective sovereignty of Northern Ireland over to the EU. But none, nonetheless, because we left the bloc as a whole, we are able to have more independence over our economic decisions. But thank you for that message, Georgina. Our next message comes from Anna, who says, I don't agree that the Hong Kong programme has been a great success. Something like 144,000 people have moved to the UK from Hong Kong in two years since we launched the immigration scheme for Hong Kong refugees. That's less than half the amount that the government thought would move over to the UK. So is that a success? Similarly, I need to ask, what are we offering the Uyghur Muslims? Other countries are offering Uyghur refugees an opportunity to relocate to their country to safety, yet the UK is not. These are examples of the UK's newfound so-called independence not being used for the better. Well, thank you for that message, Anna. And on the Hong Kong scheme, I'm of the view that it should be expanded to encompass all Hong Kongers with British national overseas status and uh, perhaps more of their relative, you know, their their husbands or wives or partners, whatever it may be, um, who might not have that status but are still tied to that individual. At the moment, it's just um, th those with that status who were born between a certain time period and their uh, children and, and maybe a partner as well. It's, it's a very limited scheme, and I, I, I'm of the view that it should be expanded to all British national offer those who who are entitled to uh, come here to give them the option to be here. Similarly, your, your point about the Uyghur Muslims, again, I, I think the UK could be doing so much more on this as a start, actually recognising what is happening to the Uyghurs as a genocide. The British Parliament has done so. Uh, the, the only government that has actually made the declaration of genocide is the United States government. And that was actually done by Donald Trump right at the end of his presidency. And it must have been a good idea because it was one of the very, very few things that Joe Biden actually carried on with. He has also made that recognition. And there have uh, the US Congress has also recognized that and has passed legislation to limit the import of cotton to, that was picked in Xinjiang to the United States uh, because it's believed that the cotton picking trade in Xinjiang is being operated based on slave labor of Uyghurs. So the UK absolutely needs to do more. It needs to slap more sanctions on the uh, Chinese Communist Party individuals who are organizing this horrific persecution they need to sanction the general secretary in Xinjiang uh, and they, they need to actually call it out, actually make the declaration. The evidence is there. The, the BBC has done some fantastic reporting on this uh, over the last few years. Admittedly, it's, it's not much because, frankly, there's, there's not too much information to be taken from there. Everything's so secretive in that part of China and so wrapped up. They've what they have produced has been some excellent reporting. Similarly, the Washington Post has done some uh, great work on that as well. So, you know, thank you for that message, Anna. I, I take your point. I really do. We should be doing more. We really, really should be doing more. But I think as a starting point, certainly on the Hong Kong programme, it has been a success. There has been a good take up of it. It should be expanded. And as for the Uyghurs, again, we just need to do more. But uh, the fact that our parliament has recognised what's going on there as a genocide that is a sign of progress and has applied pressure on the government to take further action than they would have done without that declaration. But thank you for that message, Anna. And 
Our next message from is from Callum, and Callum says, We have a monarch that the world doesn't care about anymore. Our inflation is amongst the highest in the world. London is one of the most unlivable cities in the world, and our government is filled with ministers who just cannot do their job. You know what? I kind of trusted that the EU was mostly filled with the smartest people from the whole of Europe leading in their fields. What is our parliament filled with? The UK will always be a major influence because much of the world is the way it is because of our legacy. But does that mean the UK isn't a joke on the world stage? Well, other than the times when other countries lapse in their responsibility and we step in, I think we are an absolute joke. Well, thank you for that message, Callum. And I, I have to disagree with you there. I don't think we are an absolute joke. I take your points that there are areas in our system which have their flaws, to say the least. Uh, I, I think the, the calibre of our politicians uh, leaves a lot to be desired, and I'm very much of the view that if we paid our MPs a heck of a lot more money, we would get a higher quality of candidate standing for election to become a member of parliament. I think it's absolutely pitiful that the uh, salaries MPs and even ministers get. I mean, the, the prime minister, it, you, you can get a higher paid salary working as a general manager at a Bucky's store in the United States than you do as prime minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That is something that needs to change. We will get better candidates coming forward with that. But on your point about the EU, I, I, I get where you're coming from. But fundamentally, the EU is a very protectionist organisation. It doesn't tend to think outside the box very often. And again, the independence that the UK has means that we can change our laws to attract the best and brightest from around the world, to cut taxes, make it more profitable, make make London livable. And again, I completely agree with you there. We do need to do more, particularly on tackling crime. And on your, so thank you, thank you for that message, Callum. And I want to build on your point about the, the fact that you're saying we have a monarch the world doesn't care about anymore. I completely, completely disagree with you on that issue. And that leads us quite nicely onto the next topic of today, because you're on, I, I, have to, I have to take issue with that point about the, the world doesn't care about our monarch anymore, because they are the UK's top cultural export, the monarchy. And this week it was on full display as their majesties, the king and queen, made their first state visit of their reign. Now, the royal couple visited Germany with great fanfare, as the trip was amended due to Emmanuel Macron cancelling their state visit to Paris. And this was because of the ongoing violent protests as a result of Macron's controversial pension reforms, which was a deeply humiliating blow to the beleaguered French president. But the beauty of monarchy is that it rises above party politics and acts as an ambassador in a way no other politician or career diplomat ever could. Monarchy is a profound and unique concept, which is there to facilitate relations with other countries. Perhaps Germany is an easy win for Buckingham Palace, by virtue of the fact that the House of Windsor was, until 1912, the House of saxe coburg gotha and that the British royalty was, in fact, German royalty as well. The late Queen spoke fluent French and good German, whilst the King is much more of a polyglot, being able to speak French, German, Welsh and reportedly Greek fluently whilst having a very good understanding of Scottish Gaelic and Arabic. Her late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II was a force to be reckoned with on the world stage. Her wealth of experience and knowledge was unrivalled, and any leader visiting the UK would have been desperate to meet her. That legacy was reflected at her state funeral in September, which was one of the largest gatherings of heads of state and government ever held. King Charles's visit to Berlin and Hamburg, by all accounts, was a roaring success, 
with the king becoming the first British monarch to address the Bundestag, Germany's parliament. In his address to German MPs, this is what the king said. I can hardly begin to express the pride I feel in the strength of the partnership between our two countries. Germany, her people and distinctive culture have made such a profound impact on me over so many years, so many of my previous visits. Since I first came to Germany, when I was just 13 years old, I have grown to become familiar with the different corners of this remarkable land. Like many uh, British people, I have close personal ties here. In my case, cherished family relationships and associations that go back generations. For all of us, however, there are countless points of connection and common experience in the British-German story, which has unfolded over nearly two millennia. To my mind, there is no other leader who can deliver a speech quite like we just heard. Monarchy is the great unifier, and the Anglo-German relationship is evidence of that. In 2018, German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier, who received the King and Queen in Berlin this week, visited London to commemorate the centenary of the end of the First World War. At the service of commemoration, he shook hands with Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II inside Westminster Abbey by the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in a hugely significant display of reconciliation and forgiveness between the two nations. But if that gesture was done by, say, just two politicians, it would have felt more performative than symbolic. As the monarchy adapts to the modern day, representing the UK on the world stage is not limited to the King and Queen. It was announced this week that Prince William and Catherine, the Prince and Princess of Wales, will take on a much more interna internationalist role and champion global Britain's causes. Having already established himself as a devoted environmentalist through the Earthshot Prize for innovative solutions to climate change, the Prince of Wales is becoming an ambassador for a number of other issues. Prince William visited Poland last month to meet with British and Ukrainian soldiers training at a base on the Poland-Ukraine border, as well as visiting Warsaw for a more traditional diplomatic meeting with President Andrzej Duda. After the meeting, Prince William dined with his team at a small LGBT restaurant in the capital, which was seen as taking a stance against the Polish government's more hostile policies towards LGBT people, and is a marked shift in the monarchy staying away from politics. We are one month away from the King and Queen's coronation, and it is expected to be the ultimate expression of soft power for the United Kingdom. Critics of the monarchy have said that the institution's clout around the world would lessen following Queen Elizabeth II's death. However, as we've seen from Germany this week, that is very much not the case. So let me know what you think. Is the monarchy still as re relevant overseas as it once was? All of our contact details and the poll can be found on our website at www.wizardradio.com. We'll be back just after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
welcome back to the show. We're still discussing the monarchy's role overseas, and please do continue to vote in the poll as well. The question of the day is, is the UK still a major influence around the world? To vote on that poll, visit wizardradio.com forward slash listen to vote live. Let's take your messages now, and our next message comes from Will. Will says, I'm sure you would have seen the news articles, Nathan, of all the pop stars who have turned down the opportunity to perform at the King's coronation. Many of the UK's biggest and best exports, Adele, Harry Styles, Robbie Williams, Elton John and Ed Sheeran, have all turned down the opportunity to perform at the coronation. When the Queen was our monarch, that would have never have happened. Everybody respected the Queen, even if you took issue with what the monarchy itself represents. Now that we have King Charles, the respect is clearly not there. Our own pop stars don't respect King Charles and neither do the majority of the public. It's easier to side with Harry and Meghan for many people than it is to respect King Charles, which says so much about the opinion of the monarchy has changed. Well, thank you for that message, Will. And I I have seen those news reports and it's disappointing that those artists don't want to perform for their majesties, the King and Queen, because the coronation is going to be watched all over the globe. It's a unique ceremony. It's a beautiful ceremony. It's a sacred and there's just nothing like it. And to have the opportunity to perform in front of the world and to turn that down is a great shame. And there's no getting around the fact that Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II was a very, very much beloved and respected leader and figure. But I think when it comes to King Charles and Queen Camilla, there's a a different relationship that people have with them. People are used to King Charles or as Prince Charles and Prince of Wales as he was. They're used to him being much more of a a campaigning figure, much more of a a vocal figure on certain issues. And there's, to, to a large extent with that, there's a sense of nervousness perhaps, apprehension, not sure what to expect from him now that he's king. And it is early days and I think a lot of people's opinions will change as a result of the coronation and we will see him fully assume his role, fully embedded in the new job. And as for your point about Harry and Meghan, I'm not a big fan of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. I don't think they are representative in any way, shape or form. And I don't think many people feel that way. And in fact, I think one of the best representations of public opinion about them is the recent episode of South Park that was just broadcast about them. If you are a fan of South Park, I'm sure you will have seen that. It's very funny and I would highly recommend watching that. And I, I think it's the most accurate portrayal of their perception in the public. But thank you for that message, Will. And our final message of the day comes from Yasmin, who says, I saw one or two clips online about King Charles's trip to Germany, but really it was quite ignorable news. If it was the Queen who had done that speech, it would have been headline news and trending for days. I'm inclined to focus more on the social media reaction than the news reaction, because news coverage is dictated by editors, whereas social media reaction is actually people showing that they care about something. And sadly, I think the lack of reaction in the mainstream kind of said it all. I am a monarchist. I believe that without a doubt, it is the best path for our country. So I hope that the coronation is the party that it needs to be, that it brings people together and respect and interest in King Charles grows to the level that the Queen had. Well, thank you for that message, Yasmin. And it it was a bit disheartening actually to see some of the social media reaction to uh, the state visit because actually it was a success and 
I think in many ways it's actually brought a more human uh, element to King Charles. Sometimes he can seem a bit remote, a bit detached from wider society and perhaps a bit aloof at, at, on occasion. But, you know, to, to see him uh, meeting, greeting the German people, to see the crowds actually on the, on the videos that were circulating on social media, the crowds were in the hundreds, I think, of, for the arrival at Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. The, you know, the, the Unterden Linden, the main road that leads up to the Brandenburg Gate, one of Berlin's major streets, you know, it was packed with people waiting to see the king. There was a huge reaction. And similarly with uh, Queen Camilla as well, you know, we're used to seeing her as a, in a more traditional role, taking a, a, something of a, a side position. But to see her championing other causes as well while she was there, like uh, meeting with the illustrator of the Gruffalo to read that book to local children in Hamburg. Again, it presents a new side to them that we don't usually get to see. And I, th I think that tended to be ignored by the traditional news outlets and uh, the, the social media traction that I saw around it uh, seemed to be largely supportive of the new issues that they're championing and some of the videos that were being shared were impressive and showed that there is still a love for the institution of monarchy overseas. But I completely agree with you about the coronation. You know, no king or future queen will ever achieve the same status as Queen Elizabeth II did because of the fact that she was a unique leader. No monarch ever, apart from Louis XIV during, who ended up causing the French Revolution, no monarch had ever served as long as her other than Louis XIV. And so she, no, no reign will ever come close to replicating it. So hopefully interest will peak with King Charles and Queen Camilla following the coronation and we will see that new side to them. So thank you for that message, Yasmin. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week. But before we go, let's check in with the final poll result. A reminder, the question of the day is, is the UK still a major influence around the world? Well, 53% of you say yes, the UK is still a major influence. 47% of you say no, it is not. Well, thank you to everyone who's listened to this week's episode and thanks to everyone who sent in messages live. If your message wasn't read out this week, then please do try again next week. I'm Nathan Eckersley and I'll be back at the same time, same place next week. Goodbye. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.